Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's Department of Human Services says the number of calls to report elder abuse is on the rise. What you need to know to protect your loved ones. Then, a study shows more Mississippi high school students are graduating, but the population is shrinking. Find out how slow growth could affect future rates. And so we have a lot of communities in Mississippi where the enrollment is declining sharply, even as some of our other communities are growing pretty sharply because we are not growing as a whole. We continue our look at the In the Dark podcast from American Public Media over the six trials of Curtis Flowers. And in our book club, meet author Silas House. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's Department of Human Services is seeing a rise in reports of abuse of elderly people. Complaints include neglect, verbal, physical, emotional, or financial abuse. The National Center for Elder Abuse reports in 60% of cases the abusers are family members. Caregivers also victimize the elderly. Sandra McClendon is director for Aging and Adult Services at the Department of Human Services. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier awareness may play a role in the increase in calls. The public is more aware now than they were several years ago. I have a team that works in the APS that does a well, actually the director for my um, adult protective services and our director for the call center are a team, and they go out, they have started in the northern part of the state talking to hospitals, doctors. Um, They've talked to daycares, adult daycares, senior daycares. They've gone to law enforcement. They've touched about 1,500 people in the last six months, and um, they're continuing to move till they've covered the whole state. So I think that there's more um, awareness out there than there had been, and especially with the hospitals and the um, Some areas are more knowledgeable than others, of course, if you're around Jackson. But for those in the rural areas, um, they have not been aware that we even exist. What types of elder abuse are they? Are there? I was uh, looking at some reports, and it talked about financial. um... That's exploitation. We we use that term exploitation. Under that is financial exploitation. We as well get reports from banks because of that when they see something suspicious and with a a person that is elderly. For example, if they see them come in and someone's with them and they want to withdraw money, or if they notice in a bank account that money has been um, being, checks have been written at various grocery stores or place of business, or if there's been lots of checks written and and that was not indicative of what had happened patterns in the past. So um, they they are very good, I think, in the state of Mississippi to alert and make reports um, because they are uh, protective of the seniors. What can you do in these instances when you get these calls? When we get the reports, of course, we we have to, within 48 hours, go out to the home and um, to check and to, to talk about the report. Of course, we always let them know that we're not there to remove them or to cause them any trouble, but we're there to help them 
to help them be safe. And if there's, for example, not food in the home, we would certainly provide that for them and get something set up. We have a nutrition program all over the state, um, i.e. Meals on Wheels, and that person may perhaps um, be eligible for that and we would get meals begun to be delivered to their home. Um, Other services, if they live alone and the house is, is not very clean or they need some help, they're helping with homemaker services. We also provide those. And all of our services are paid for through federal funding, Title III and Title VII. And um, then our funds are funneled to the AAAs, the area aging agencies across the state, and they implement our programs. So when our investigators are talking or out in these homes and talking to these folks, they assess what resources are needed, and then they in turn contact the AAA agencies for help for our programs, or they will call agencies like Families First um, because they have a a certain array of services as well. What number can people call? That number is 1-844-437-6282. DHS Director for Aging Sandra McClendon. Mississippi's Attorney General's Office has two units that deal with elder abuse based on the setting where the abuse occurs. They are the Vulnerable Persons Unit and the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. Treasure Tyson is Special Assistant for the Attorney General's Office. She tells our Desiree Frazier what loved ones can do to help protect elderly loved ones. People need to be aware of who is providing care to those who are elderly or who are vulnerable who can't take care of themselves. Um, They need to be real vigilant, for lack of a better term, to watch out for those they love. Talk to them. Interview the people who are going to provide care. Spend some time around them. Um, And there's a, a registry, a nationwide registry. If someone's been convicted of abuse, neglect, or exploitation, then they would be on a nationwide registry on OIG HHS website. Actually, it's a free website. Just log on to the to the website and check for the exclusion, and you would know if someone's ever been convicted of that crime. So that would be a resource as well. Yes, what are the warning signs that people present to you? Unexplained bruising, unexplained injuries, sicknesses that remain untreated, if they're in the summertime and wearing exceptionally heavy clothing, if they're suddenly losing a lot of weight, or if their behavior has, has a sudden change in behavior is always a sign, is often a sign, not always. Any idea how many cases you have in a year's time or a month's time? Or We get reports of over 2,000 cases a year in our unit. I think the important thing for people who have loved ones who need assistance is to pay attention, visit, research, check references, and report any any suspicions or of abuse or neglect, and, and really be an advocate for those those people. Special Assistant to the Attorney General Treasure Tyson. June is Elder Abuse Awareness Month. Hear these conversations again whenever you want by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. 
Mississippi's overall graduation rate is increasing. The state's rate rose to 82 percent, just shy of the national average of 84 percent in 2016. That's according to the Condition of Education report by the National Center for Education Statistics. Researchers also found the education achievement gap between white students and black students in Mississippi is closing. They say the seven percentage point difference between African-American students and their white counterparts is one of the lowest in the nation. Joel McFarland is the lead author of the report. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood more on the study's findings. The condition of education is our agency's annual report to Congress, and it contains 40 to 50 short chapters, each of which is designed to give a summary of the latest data that we have on particular topics in education. What were some of the key findings for Mississippi? So overall, the state's graduation rate in 2015-16 was 82%, and um, the rate for white students was 86% compared to 79% for black students and 82% for Hispanic students. Compared to recent years, what big of a difference are we looking at? Sure. So um, we have uh, three years of data on racial and ethnic gaps that we featured in the report. And I was looking back at um, how Mississippi's data have changed over time. And the white Hispanic gap has been pretty steady at four percentage points over the last three years. But the white-black gap has narrowed um, from 12 percentage points in 13-14 to 7 percentage points in 2015-16. Were there any um, significant test score improvements worth mentioning? What we do at NCS is we have National Assessment of Education Progress, and um, that looks at test scores in math and reading in 4th and 8th grade. And we just released new data in 2017. Joel McFarlane is with the National Center for Education Statistics. Thank you so much, Joel, for your time today. Thank you. While more Mississippi high school students are graduating, some say the state's population is shrinking. Rachel Cantor is the executive director of Mississippi First, a nonprofit education policy group. She tells our Ashley Norwood the effects will be different based on local community conditions. What we are seeing in the Mississippi NAEP data, as well as in our graduation rate data, is that students across the board in Mississippi are improving. So white students are doing better, black students are doing better, students who come from disadvantaged economic backgrounds are doing better. We're seeing all students doing better, and that means that we are getting better faster than the nation, which is something that has to happen for us to catch up and to get you know, and to move forward um, above the national average. And it means that the system as a whole, education as a whole in Mississippi is getting better. It's not that certain populations of kids are just, are either doing worse or just doing a whole lot better. It means that everybody is improving. Now, the report also listed a number of states that they suspect will see a decrease in enrollment. Why do you think that might be possible? Enrollment declines in Mississippi have been happening for about 10 years now. If you look, if you go back and look at the data in terms of how many kids we had enrolled in public school 10 years ago and you look now, you will see a steady, a steady decrease over that time period. If you look at our census data for how many people we have in the state, you also see that we are not growing or we're actually shrinking a little bit especially compared to all of our southeastern neighbors. All of our southeastern neighbors are growing in terms of their population. So when you have a population as a whole that's not growing, that means that your school-age population is also 
not likely to grow very much. So that's not a very surprising finding from the report because it mirrors what we have seen for a long time in our census data as well as in um, just the metrics that are put out by the Mississippi Department of Education. What this means is that there are going to be some school districts in the state that are going to be more heavily impacted by that enrollment decline. Obviously, we have communities in Mississippi that are experiencing more prosperity. Those school districts are growing at a rapid pace. People find those places desirable places to live. They're moving there. They're enrolling their kids in school. And what that means, because we don't have an overall influx of new people and the overall population isn't growing, it means that when somebody moves from one place to another in Mississippi, that other place is going to shrink. And so we have a lot of communities in Mississippi where the enrollment is declining sharply, even as some of our other communities are growing pretty sharply because we are not growing as a whole. So we're really just moving people from place to place. And that means some people, some school districts are growing and some school districts are not. And overall, the numbers are going down. Rachel Cantor is the executive director of Mississippi First. Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. The full condition of education report is available online at nces.ed.gov. Coming up, we continue our look at the In the Dark podcast from American Public Media over the six trials of Curtis Flowers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On July 16, 1996, the owner and three employees of Tardy Furniture were found dead inside the Winona, Mississippi store. Former Tardy Furniture employee Curtis Flowers had been fired from the store days before. After six trials, Flowers is now on death row at Parchment Prison. His story is the subject of the new season of the investigative podcast In the Dark. As revealed in the latest episode, the team of reporters made some key findings in the jury selection process. Joining us with more on data gathered on juries in central Mississippi going back 26 years is data reporter Will Craft. In your latest podcast, you focus on the district attorney for the 5th Judicial District. Now, you have been responsible for the data itself regarding jury selection. How far back did you look? So, We went back to when Doug Evans was elected, 1992, and we tried to gather data on as many trials as we could covering his entire tenure as the district attorney. So we went from 1992 and then tried to get data up to the current day, up to 2017. That's a lot of data over a long period of time. Yes. It's um, probably the most difficult aspect of the whole thing is that no one tracks pretty much any of the information that we needed to do the whole project. So the first step is we needed to come up with a list of the trials over this time period. And there's no central database. There's no computer anywhere where we can go and look up all the trials. We had to go through the district courthouses. So there were eight courthouses across seven counties, and each one has – a large docket book that 
the court clerks keep track of all of the filing deadlines and all of the court documents. And we had to go page by page through these docket books looking for evidence of trials because the you know different uh, different kinds of uh, motions will be filed when there's a jury trial. So we had to basically use that to figure out where the trials were. After all that, what did you find? We found that prosecutors in the 5th Judicial District were removing black potential jurors from jury pools at a rate four and a half times that of white jurors. So what that means is the prosecutors were rejecting half of all the black jurors they had the option of accepting, but they only rejected 10% of the white jurors. So they were striking and removing black jurors at a rate far higher that of the white potential jurors. Your data suggests that Doug Evans did something illegal. If that were the case, who would press charges against him? How would that come out in court? Well, so we actually um, do not show that he has done anything illegal. Um, That's one of the sticking points of jury selection. It's incredibly difficult to prove that prosecutors struck jurors because of their race. What we did was we found a racial disparity, and then we even um, tested possible alternate, alternate explanations. But even then, there still could be a lot of reasons that Doug Evans had for removing these jurors. Um, we, uh, a, lot, a very common reason cited during jury selection for removing potential jurors are their demeanor, their attitude towards the court. And that's not something that is possible to read in the court transcripts. So we have a lot of questions, and the only person who really knows why these jurors are being removed is Doug Evans, and he's declined to comment. So we haven't shown that he's done anything illegal, but we've raised some troubling questions that have some uh, profound implications about the jury selection process. This podcast was just released on Tuesday morning. How can people access that and all of the podcasts? This was episode eight? Yeah, episode eight. So they can listen to it wherever they get their podcasts on um, on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify um, or even our website, apmreports.org. Will Kraft is the data reporter for In the Dark Podcast. Will, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Silas House is our guest in today's book club. The author wears many hats. He is a frequent contributor to the New York Times and a former commentator for NPR's All Things Considered. House is a member of the Fellowship of Southern Writers and is the winner of multiple awards and honors. His newest book is called Southernmost. It tackles judgment, courage, heartbreak, and change with the story of an evangelical preacher in small-town Tennessee. House tells us writing the piece made him consider more than he'd expected. It was just the first time I totally disappeared into a book. It was the first time I realized the power of a book and how it could just take you to a new world, and it could also change you as a person. I mean, I had never thought anything about race issues or anything remotely like that, and suddenly I did. You're a novelist, a nonfiction writer, a playwright, a music journalist, a contributor to such publications as the New York Times, the Oxford American. You're a former commentator for All Things Considered. You're an activist. You've been nominated for and won countless awards. Are you tired? (laughs) I think that any contemporary writer is a juggler. 
to some degree in that most of us have other jobs. And, and we also feel called to be a part of other movements. However, I think all of that feeds the creative process. And so maybe tired is not the best word. It's just busy. And I didn't even include all the other things you do, but how do you prioritize? What's most important to you, or does it change at, at a given time? Well, besides my family, writing is always the most important thing to me. You know, it's just if I'm not writing, I'm not happy. And and so I, I always have to be writing something. I'm always working on something in my head, if not on paper. How much does being a Southerner inform your writing? Well, I think that's largely what made me a, a writer. I grew up around storytellers, and I think that they were storytellers largely because of their culture. I grew up around older people, and that was really important to me, being in that mixed kind of culture where where all ages mix. To me, that's a a Southern thing. I don't know. I can't think about myself and not think about my Southern identity. It's who I am. It's everything that I am, the food, the storytelling, the the cadence of the place, the land. It's really important to me. And I try to show that in a really complex way in my writing. I never want to romanticize it, and I certainly don't want to vilify it. I just want to show it as a complex place. Tell us about Southern most. Well, it's a very contemporary novel. It takes place during the summers, mostly during the summers of 2015 and 2016. And it's all about a a preacher, uh, an evangelical preacher, who his whole life he has thought he knew exactly who he was, and he thought that he knew what he believed in. But after his brother comes out to him, he starts to question that because he loves his brother so much, but he's been raised to reject him. And so it takes him about 10 years to work his way through this. And um, finally, he is moved to action when this devastating flood hits his town. And people start to blame the flood on gay people. At the same time, a gay couple is homeless because of the flood. And they come to his house and his wife refuses to let them stay there because they're gay. And that's just his breaking point. And so that sets into motion all these events that eventually lead to him losing custody of his little boy. So he kidnaps him and runs off to Key West in the hopes of finding his brother, whom he hasn't seen in 10 years. How much of the book mirrors your own struggles with acceptance and the fears, maybe, of coming out yourself? Well, it's not an autobiographical book. I didn't want to write a book from the point of view of somebody coming out. To me, it was much more interesting to write it from the point of view of someone who was evolving on the issue. As somebody who came out, I've been really surprised by the evolution I've witnessed in people that I would have never dreamt that could have happened. And so I thought that was an interesting story to tell because I think a whole lot of Americans can relate to that. And I just, I wanted to uh, go into the mind of that person. There's a secondary character who has very little page time in the book. His name is Luke. And he he's the character that's closest to me, but I, you know, I spend the least time with him. So I wanted to explore it from, from another point of view. Silas House is the author of Southernmost, and I thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.
Silas House has a book signing at Lemuria this coming Tuesday, June 19th at 5 p.m. and at Square Books on Wednesday, June 20th at 5 p.m. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Twitter or Facebook. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio.